Darmstadt on Air number 9. Interaction with other ears. Kate Mollison in conversation with Anea Lockwood. Hello and thank you for joining Darmstadt on Air, our series of conversations on music and experiment. My name is Thomas Schäfer from the Darmstadt Summer Course team and I welcome you to the ninth edition of our podcast. As you might know when you have already listened to one or even more of our conversations, each episode is hosted by a tutor of the Darmstadt Summer Course. And this time, Kate Mollison takes the mic. Kate is a journalist and broadcaster. She presents BBC Radio 3's new music show and Music Matters. Her documentaries for BBC Radio 4 and BBC World Service have investigated music in many different parts of the world with many different musical genres. Kate's articles are published in The Guardian and The Herald, BBC Music Magazine or Gramophone. Next to Darmstadt, where she is conducting the workshop Talking About Music, Together with Peter Meanwell, she teaches music journalism at Dartington. Her conversation partner is the composer and electronic musician Anea Lockwood. Anea was born 1939 in Christchurch, New Zealand. As Anna Ferguson Lockwood, she registered in 1961, 62 and 63 at the Darmstadt Summer Course and visited workshops, for example, by Luciano Berio, Olivier Messiaen or Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. In the early 60s, she moved to London, and a decade later to New York, where she was in touch with Pauline Oliveros, John Cage, Lamonte Young, or members of the Sonic Arts Union. With Kate Mollison, she talks about her life as a composer, her early important experience in Darmstadt, about her glass concerts and long-durational river recordings, and the small scenes in New York. Please enjoy listening. Hi, and there, there you are. Hi. Hello, how are you? Good. It's getting a little chilly here. How about Edinburgh? Oh, it's beautiful here today. Uh, it's an, it's one of these rare, very blue, very sunny, very still autumn days. It's absolutely gorgeous. Why don't you start by telling me what uh, what's in that photograph behind your head? It looks like a mountain and a, and a riverbed. It's Alpha's Pass, which is a, a pass through the Southern Alps. About three hours' drive west of Christchurch, where I was born. And mm. my father and his friends, in the very early days of skiing, so early that they were learning how to ski <laughs> while reading books about how to ski, <laughs> uh, in the very early days of skiing, uh, bought little batches there, little huts which had been built for uh, railway workers who were putting a, a towel through the pass. And... Uh, He and his friends started uh, a mountaineering club there, uh, an offshoot with ski, ski schools for kids. Uh, so I was up there every winter with my brother. Uh, my father was George Lockwood um, and my mother Fergie Lockwood. We were up there every winter and most summers. Um, the huts on the, as it were, the banks... Uh, a little distance, but not a great distance from the Beely River. There's a uh, bush-covered uh, hillside behind, on the other side of the Beely, on, on both sides. It's a fairly narrow valley, 
wonderful birds to listen to. The river is always fascinating. It's a mobile river. It reforms its bed every so often and changes to, you know, changes its its uh, primary channel. And it was it was a wonderful area to to spend a lot of time in. Yeah, I also think that the the music that kind of obsesses people at that age the kind of 12 13 age is really pivot is really formational what was what was obsessing you at that point oh such a mix at, at 12 I don't remember but by the time oh um, no I don't I was listening to what my parents were listening to basically um which included a lot of Schubert chamber music <laughs> among other things yeah. but but and I remember being absolutely enraptured by the Romeo and Juliet overture of Tchaikovsky, for example. Very romantic, yeah. Yeah. Um, By the time I went to university, I was listening to Mahler, the Ferrier, Kathleen Ferrier recording of the Lied von der Erde was something I loved and kept going back to. and while I was at university, I fell in love with Webern, for example, who's, who's what I still feel as a sort of asceticism um, it really appealed to me. By the time I'd finished at the Royal College and been to Darmstadt a couple of times and Don Eschingen and so on, um, my interest my interests in compositionally had moved decisively uh, away from conservative... Um, conservative styles. Yeah, tell me about Darmstadt in those years. I want the gossip from those early years, <laughs> early 60s Darmstadt. And I was just saying, uh, you know, the, the height of, of serialism, high serialism in Darmstadt in the early 60s. And again, it's not something that I really associate you with. Uh, so I wonder what what it was like to be there in those years uh, Lamont Young and Boulez and and uh, what were you what were you soaking up uh, in those summers so the first summer i was there i was going to uh, seminars by Berio uh, Moderna Messiaen Boulez Stockhausen uh, and i think it might have been that summer that i heard, that i encountered Lamont Young Doing furniture music, which was a total revelation, and other other work, of course, um, and I loved it, and uh, and I began to be uh, become a friend of Franco Evangelisti, a really beautiful Italian composer, of, who was one of the main um, progenitors of of aleatoric work, and and I loved the sense that there was um, a vital a vital push and pull going on between serialism and uh, chance operations and uh, the uh, the sense that all parameters uh, could be designed, the, the shaping of all parameters uh, could be consciously designed uh, in serialism and on the other hand the openness to parameters doing uh, unexpected, taking unexpected swerves in, in chance operations. It was totally exhilarating. Yeah, the push and pull is right. And where did you, did you naturally find yourself, I, I'm guessing, gravitating towards the chance operations? Um, because that sense of kind of total control and, and domination 
doesn't seem to chime with with the work that I know of yours. <laughs> that 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 total con- obsessive control that is you know high serialism. But um, how did you relate to it at the time? I was I was really fascinated by it. I loved the way it made me and Koenig and studying with Koenig subsequently his his teachings made me consider the various parameters discreetly as it were that was really good for me uh, and then of course what ultimately captured me was open openness uh, not complete openness but almost um, but but looking into serialism um, looking at going through scores listening to composers talking about working with it uh, working with Koenig was was tremendously good training really good for my composing mind uh, I've long been grateful for it and what were the, the the kind of social dynamics of Darmstadt how was it for you was it relevant that you came from New Zealand and that you came from outside of the kind of uh, you know the hotbeds of contemporary music was that a useful thing or did, did it make you feel like an outsider um it might uh, it takes me a little while to think through these things because I live through them and then move on. Um, yes, and they, they influence me in, in many ways, but uh, I don't sort of ponder that influence. So it takes me a while to figure these things out. I was, I was hanging out with Franco and the Italians a lot. Um, I remember I was one of the younger people at the Ferryman course. Uh, I was probably one of the relatively few women there, um, which wasn't something which would necessarily be striking to me right then, but became increasingly so, of course, later on, I became more and more conscious of it. Um, By the time I went to Bilthoven to study uh, electronic music, to study at the studio there with Koenig, I was very much aware of it. I was the only woman in a group of eight or nine students. But in Darmstadt that first year, I was focused entirely on these in these uh, on these emerging theories, theoretical applications, and so on around around the various sort of major channels of, of new music at the time. They were thrilling, and that was really my focus. And just hearing so much magnificent music every day. So it sounds like at that time you were still you were still a sponge. You were you were all about absorbing everything that was going on around you. Were you also starting to think, what is my course going to be through all of this? What's my particular voice going to be? Who who am I? You know, what's my contribution in this world going to be? Or, or, or did that just take its own course? I don't think I ever feel like think like that. I don't think I think like that now. Actually. <laughs> What's my voice going to be? I I think I've always assumed it will take shape. You know, I don't have to consciously shape it. I don't have to become affiliated with any particular camp, any particular set of theories or, or uh, perspectives on what music is and how one makes it. It will take shape. Um, let me just follow what truly interests me and what feels nourishing Mm. there's a courage in that I feel I mean I think so many young composers young artists 
young writers are very conscious of where they fit in the scheme of things and who they align themselves to and what their image will be and where they'll get their platform and who you know all of these considerations so it takes it takes a certain degree of kind of self assurance not to go down that route i i wonder where you got that from my mother <laughs> instantly comes to mind <laughs> my mother was in many ways a risk taker which was wonderful and i've always had such a lot of help i mean such a lot of encouragement and and help from the music world from many different parts of the music world i, I feel all my life um like you talking to me now <laughs> you know by the mid 60s in in london and and in europe but especially over in england and the us it, it had become so clear that there were so many different aesthetic avenues we could all just dive into dive down um that no one way of working was dominant necessarily or should be dominant uh that they were all accessible to us we could try any moving in any direction and that pulls you a little counter to career oriented focus a career oriented focus uh, opportunities to to make work to perform it and so on as long as they keep coming so that you can keep working everything else is uh will also sort itself out i've long felt and it could be, and sometimes I've wondered if because in, in those years, because I was a woman and, and um, there were not as many of us working then as there are now, which is, of course, I mean, the scene now with women composers and, um, is, is exciting and, and vast, but uh, was less so in those days. Maybe in a way it became more uh, enticing, more... Uh, satisfying to be exploring than to try be trying to uh, hew a career path against some considerable odds. Although there was a tradition of women uh, working in electronic music, of course, in, in London, as as we as we know, uh, Daphne and others, very strong progenitors, and there had long been a tradition of uh, women composers in New Zealand too, which has I think always been open to women composers. So. In the background, there was this uh, acceptance uh, also at the same time. I'm really curious about um, about the way you frame that, you know, the, the, considerable ob- the considerable obstacles to a career path for a woman at that stage being something that you feel allowed you to be more exploratory rather than simply, simply stopping you in your tracks. But, that's, <laughs> but what a wonderful way to reframe it. I suppose was that, or was that the only way that you could reframe it in order to keep going? Oh, it was going to keep going anyway. <laughs> that kind of answers itself, I think. <laughs> There's your answer. What? What? And um, you know, you, you said you, when you were at Darmstadt and you were one of the only women on the course, um, you, you didn't really maybe notice it so much, I guess, because it's what you were used to. But then you started to notice it. Um, as you went into studios where you were literally the only woman. How how did that feel to be the only woman? How did that manifest? What was the dynamic? The suggestion... I know, you know, I no, I don't want to comment on that because I can't do so 
with clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because my subsequent uh, many years as a feminist, colour would very much colour my response. And uh, no, I don't think I can put myself back into that mindset other than to other than to note that as I kept working with electronic resources, um, nevertheless, I found myself um, every now and then uh, questioning my capabilities, my technological capabilities and, te- and te- uh, technical understanding. And um, at those times, more likely to assume that my uh, technical abilities weren't as sharp as they should be the not, and yet I keep producing work and it's, it's okay, it works. So, <laughs> so there's a, I think there's a long sort of undercurrent of some degree of doubt about just how proficient I am technically, uh, which comes from, which stems from the male dominance of the uh, tech world in those days. And it's still a pretty male world today yeah. I, i'm interested in your response there about um not wanting to project yourself now onto yourself then i guess because um there's been quite a lot of awakening years subsequently um how do you how do you feel about your your yourself your your pre-feminist self if that's not too blunt a way of putting it do you, you are you able not to uh not to chastise yourself for what you didn't know then no i don't do that yes <laughs> I, I i worked my way into learning and and perceiving uh from a more feminist perspective gradually no i don't chastise myself for for that but it's interesting having you make me think back to those uh those aspects of 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 life then actually in those terms is it too specific to pinpoint a moment of you know of of awakening in those terms um was it one particular book one particular person in your life who, who started uh, to make you think in different ways about the gender dynamics around you or, or was it more gradual and i guess more societal there were moments of of, of uh, acute revelation um not necessarily revelation at the beginning of recognizing uh gender dynamics at work but uh encapsulating them very strongly one of which was um, encountering uh, Charlotte Mormon and Nam June Pike in London uh, during those years and uh, seeing, perceiving Charlotte is really struggling um, as, a, as a woman uh, and the necessity of her so strongly asserting what she wanted, how she wanted things done uh, concretely what she wanted from a situation, a performance situation, uh, um, from a presenter and so on, how absolutely necessary that was to her, how easily it came to Nam June. Uh, um, so watching that, uh, talking with Karolish Neyman in those years, were both were revelatory uh, experiences I listened and just took it in. 
so we're, we're kind of on the pivot now uh, of um, of you in London and you kind of being tugged west to go to America. Um, and I know you've said that, that part of what attracted you to go over there was this sense that there was something really, you know, there was a, there was a pretty interesting community happening over there and you kept meeting all these musicians in London. And um, what was, you know, I, I know it was Pauline Oliveras who eventually um, was the kind of, you know, the, the door opening. Um, what, what was your, you know, what was it that you thought you were going to get there that wasn't happening in London? What was the, what was the real kind of spark that, that kind of defined the American scene, I suppose? It was the, I mean, I, I have to talk in general terms, uh, but perhaps it would be, make sense to say that I really loved the work of the American uh, artists and musicians and composers uh, and thinkers which I had been encountering, as you mentioned, for several years in London. So that included um, David Behrman, uh, Bob Ashley, uh, Gordon Mummer, and Alban Lucier, and the uh, musicians of MEV, uh, who were based in Italy at the time, but uh, whom I kept coming across. Uh, Carolee's work um, Namjoon who is, oh, so many people what Larry Austin was doing uh, and and Pauline herself and I didn't yet, of course I hadn't encountered Ruth Anderson yet it was Ruth who, who ultimately uh, moved me to the States <laughs> Effectively, <laughs> um, but and and the people who were uh, presenting work in in source, uh, just a lot of uh, American artists and, and various media, and their work was so vibrant and so clearly exploratory, um, in a way which I had experienced in London for quite a while, but which was settling somehow. Uh, in London, those channels seem to be settling down, perhaps because um, because Cardew's position became more and more central to the London, and the positions he took uh, became more and more central to the London scene, and it wasn't an uh, it wasn't a perspective which interested me. Um, whereas the American scene looked more and more open, and looked as if it would be continuing uh, to open up, and full of all sorts of both low and high level, but especially low level opportunities uh, from small institutions and, and, and small uh, sources to present work. It was just totally enticing. It was exhilarating. That's really interesting. And I'm thinking loads of different things. First of all, about Cardew and his kind of centrality to the London scene and that being something that, that, that in a way was quite, uh, yeah... It made a kind of monoculture almost of of the new music yeah. scene. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that before, but that's that's interesting. And also that idea, I guess I'm relating it to now of what you were saying about the kind of sm small scene vibrancy of New York at that time, all the all the small venues that, that you know, the five dollar entry or one dollar entry loft concerts or or, or whatever. And uh, I suppose I'm just wondering whether now. 
is a moment to kind of think about that as a way forward, given our big institutions aren't able to operate at, the, at, the, at this time. You know, wouldn't it be great if the result was a kind of flowering of experimentalism and um, DIY-ness like there was at that time? I've been thinking that very much precisely that since since COVID-19 settled into our society, as it seems to be doing. Uh, I've been thinking that it... it that small gatherings, since small gatherings are, are going to become routine, I think, um, and that the major institutions uh, are running into all sorts of very obvious uh, problems, that it would, it, and the people are, are still producing work like crazy. I mean, really working at it at a high level um, of energy, that it would make a lot of sense uh, for uh, the small scene um, opportunities to come up again and, and for us to figure out how to, how to present our work live in such a way that everyone is, everyone is safe but or who, who, who can are present, are fully present live. We, we, so many of us miss that enormously. So this seems like a nice model to go back to. And and uh, small scene, low funding, sure, but a po- the possibility of live interaction with other ears is 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 essential. It's essential, I think. Music's a communicative, communal experience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they tend to be the most rewarding. You know, as a listener, it's the most rewarding and immediate thing to be in a in a small space with pe- people taking chances which is where it's possible i mean is it too boring of me to ask how how people make a living that way it's not the least boring and it's entirely pertinent and i'm not sure it's answerable (laughs) yeah exactly how did people make a living then um you know doing loft concerts in new york in the early 70s it was a mix of for many of us it was a mix of uh Small, relatively small fees from the presenter or door money, but at a certain point I just stopped doing gigs for door money. We can't survive on that. I didn't think it was really a good idea. Um, so a mix of that and grants from various granting organisations from the nationals down to local grants and part-time teaching for many of us. Uh, that's certainly what the mix was for me and it was for many of us. Someone like Ruth, she was full-time faculty uh, running her own studio, one of the first three women in the country to set up their own studio, which I've always been proud of. It was a very good studio. So she was full-time faculty, um, but also uh, working on grants and working from, from grants and her music being performed around the place live. It was that sort of a mix. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what the ecosystem depends on, isn't it? But is it just? I mean, it's just uh, it's a slight tangent here, but it's uh, it's such a live question on on everybody's minds. Is what what are we going to do? And is there a model that actually allows us to be more free? And can we can we make this moment into something that allows for for the kind of positive shift in the music industry that 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 could be really exciting? Yeah. So the music becomes less of a commodity and more of an experience, more of a vital experience. I wonder if we can talk about the glass concerts, um, which we mentioned in passing, but didn't, which we didn't really go into. And, um, and I'd just love to hear, I would love to hear 
how those came about and uh and I suppose it feels like a very important juncture that moment and I've read somewhere you said that that working with glass meant that you didn't go into synthesizers which might have been another option for you and uh I thought that was really interesting that this in a way satisfied or or um, ignited your fascination for complicated sounds but not through synthesizers and why you think you went in that direction okay uh let me sort of clarify that a bit after after uh studying in Bildhoven with Koenig um and reflecting at the sounds that we were building in the studios um in the um purely electronic music studios, Brian Electronic <laughs> Studios, um, lacked, lacked vitality and inherent vitality. And they, the way they were com- composers were working with them, the ways in which they were being worked with were fascinating, but in themselves the sounds seemed to me to be somewhat inert. Um, and it got me thinking about what sounds, sorts of sounds did I consider had inherent vitality. Uh, which would make me want to work with them. And those were acoustic sounds, um, which in itself was the beginning of um, my finding another uh, sound world to work in. And then I started trying to figure out what acoustic sounds or what, what acoustic resource hadn't really been thoroughly investigated and and would produce and did could produce really complex sounds and I landed on glass as something which would be unfamiliar to audiences if I avoided the usual <laughs> glass harmonica path um, and probably interestingly complex and varied and really fascinating and fun to work with so then um, I moved towards glass and um, made contact with Pilkingtons, the big British firm, who were wonderfully receptive and, and remained wonderfully helpful for several years as I did the glass concerts and built me containers with which I could ship the glass over to Australasia to do some performances and things like that. They were fantastic. You described yourself as something of a romantic when you were talking about your love of of Mahler, uh, for example. Um, And I wonder how much it mattered to you where the sounds come from, what was generating them, what the material represented, what the visuals represented. Was it purely a search for the quality of sound? And it could have been anything that made it, no matter how prosaic. Or was there something magical about these beautiful objects and um, all the, the, the light and transparency and, and magic contained within, within them? How much were you interested in the symbolism of the object? They had a strong visual element. Uh, the piece started in darkness for half an hour, but once the stage lighting came up, it was, it was playing off the, the, the um, iridescence of a lot of glass. Um, but that wasn't a... It was, it was the... the uh, it was the intricacy and um, variability of the sounds that I was able to discover that really were of prime importance to me. And you've called it a kind of anti-composition, 
the glass <clears throat> concerts and mm-hmm. it takes us back to what we were talking about before in terms of the way you approach making a piece being something that is very revealing and exposing of yourself or the performer uh, I suppose yourself in this context and you, you're allowing yourself to be somebody who is on a journey of discovery rather than somebody who's imposing your compositional will, I suppose. Um, yeah. uh, how many parameters did you set yourself? Um, when, I, when I veered over to uh, a search for interesting acoustic sound sources I would like to work with, um, I some I was also thinking. Uh, I mean, I'm always thinking timbrely. Maybe first of all, primarily to begin with. Um, and I was thinking that uh, a, often enough, a listener doesn't quite have time to absorb all the the delicate details of a sound's timbral structure um, before we move on to the next sound. And moreover, of course, we're always combining sounds to create more and more complex timbral structures. And the uh, inherent uh, uh, details, uh, interesting details of any one sound tend to get buried either linearly in in a chain of sounds in which the point is how they interact with one another, um, along with some broader details. Um, or vertically, uh, how they're interacting and, and modulating one another. But the, the details of any one of those sounds themselves tend to get a bit lost. So I thought, um, I need some ear training, basically. And uh, something, uh, and, and was pulled towards the idea that if we listen to any one complex sound, sufficiently intently we are hearing a structure that's totally fascinating and moreover um, for myself I, I'm hearing a structure of, peri- with, of periodicity pitch relationships uh, and so on, noise modifications uh, more intricate than something I could conjure up intellectually so I started working with one sound source at a time, um, sometimes just one sound, to reveal those structures instead of um, instead of painting over them in a way, or instead of using them as 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 uh, object. And that gets, of course, gets me into natural sound sources in which. They're anything but objects. They're revelations and reflections of, of really complex live processes. Yeah. yeah, this brings us really, really neatly to rivers. Um, <laughs> they and... do seem to crop up, yes. <laughs> and the recording rivers, the, the, the um, play the Ganges backwards one more time, Sam, which is just the best title. Uh, Thank you. What did you at, at the beginning of that? Was that was how? I don't want to use the word whimsical because it feels like it's trite somehow. But there's some, you know, how, how much was that about um, the image of the river, the, the 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 association you had from your you know from your youth and the kind of the the kind of natural associations rather than the sounds itself, or was it again that search for the complex sound and um, your idea that a river was 
was great year trading, which is which is a fun way of looking at it. Or, or was it both? Maybe it was both. Um, <laughs> you give me, you ask me to think about um, conjunctions and so on, which sprang into being so quickly and and sort of naturally and buried. You know that it's really intriguing and a challenge for me to bring them up to the surface and explain them. <laughs> But let me start with, yeah, the idea of forming a river archive of all the world's rivers and streams, and, and, and then I take it to absurdity with springs and so on, is inherently whimsical and absurd. And, and um, yeah, I like absurdity very much. And I like playing with whim, you know, whimsical uh, ideas. Other than that, I was also beginning to explore John Michel's uh, that information which I think I culled call, from John Michel's uh, book about the connections between uh, rivers, rivers, and uh, riparian environments essentially and healing, uh, psychological healing processes and was curious about how much the sound of moving water contributes to that um, possible healing and wanted to really dig into the sound of moving water. And, of course, it, for all the obvious reasons of my, buried in my childhood, uh, um, in sound of moving water and river systems per se are uh, very resonant, have all sorts of resonances for me. So an absurd idea, but also a way of uh, assembling river recordings, and I like the idea of involving my friends in it too. Uh, and it never really went very far because I was commissioned to do the Hudson River not terribly long after. And how important was it that it was that river, the Hudson, and and all the history and culture and uh, sense of place and sense of meaning that that river entails? How how important was that? How, how much could you retain that sense of pure sound? Uh, the pursuit of pure sound and how much did the implication of that particular river come into it? It's not my history. <laughs> Perhaps if it had been the Thames, I would have, that would have been more in my consciousness, the history of the river as I worked on it, perhaps. Um, but also I'm not, I didn't grow up associating rivers with a, um, a powerful history. I mean, in New Zealand, that was not a, an automatic association by any means, and the rivers were not so, at least in, in Pākehā experience, not so storied as they are in the US or in Europe and in many other, Asia and many other parts of the world. Um, they're wild things, <laughs> right? Um so that aspect of an and I wasn't interested in doing anything uh, reflective of docu a documentary. I was um, with all the river work; it's always sound. I'm interested in the in the way the sound of the river changes. Um, so I, I wasn't I was I wasn't thinking. I had I didn't think as I went down the Hudson about its colonial history, which is of, of great importance, of course, to to the settling of the state I've been living in for a long time. But I just wasn't wasn't thinking in that direction. Um, what I was interested in was, and what um, got me started on the Hudson, was the realisation that New Yorkers love it, but it's a visual, for most New Yorkers, it's a, a visual symbol 
uh, and a visual entity necessarily. I mean, they, it's not so easy to get out on the river unless you're on a ferry, and even then you're not really hearing the river's sound so clearly for various reasons. Um, so they, they ha don't have a, much of a chance to listen to it to any great extent. And not and for at the time at which I was working on it, people were not swimming in the Hudson. It was heavily polluted. There was a, an ongoing uh, um, crusade to clean up the river, which fortunately had some excellent effects. Uh, but then people weren't swimming in it, so they weren't feeling how on their bodies, through their bodies, how powerful that river is and has very powerful currents, strong currents. And I wanted to get at that. I wanted to bring the sound of the river to people who live near it or see it every day and some sense of the river's energy, its physicality, its physicality. And so I started going down river and talking to people as I went down river, but I was always talking to them about physical experiences of the river's power one way or another. And in the process, one old farmer way up river told me about, he was really elderly, told me about seeing um, Native Americans uh, crossing, just wading across, fording the river when he was a kid at a, at a ford nearby. Um, and bits of history crept into their, their stories, but the focus was on the river's river as a as a physical entity and its great power tell me about the sounds themselves what is it that you find is so interesting and intricate about river sounds i mean specifically i love it that they're very often many layered so it's as if my my uh, audio cortex has to do a slow scan done or likes to do a slow scan down through the layers from the most obvious immediate um, splash sounds frequently, uh, high frequency sounds, down into mid and low frequency rumbles and rhythms which are churning underneath the splash sounds, for example. So there, I, I love that process of, of getting myself to just patiently scan um, and while I'm scanning, which is, uh, which takes a little while, of course, the river sounds are changing constantly anyway. <laughs> so I'm scanning a moving entity, a highly mobile entity. So it's, it's challenging. And the interactions of those layers in my, in my mind, in my perception of them are, are wonderful. And it's really marvelous whenever, you know, because of, um, our love of music it's it's really wonderful when there's a little sort of mid-range uh, series of pitches that come and go as frequently do in moving water uh, and you and you sort of cotton onto it and start really singling it out and tracking it and as referring back to what I said about natural sounds being more intricate in their structure that I feel I can possibly devise in planning so to speak the the aperiodicity of those pitches is delicious. You know, their unpredictability. I the love that. The aperiodicity, can you explain that? The irregularities built oh. into them. I've, I've, uh, the, since working on the Danube, and, and while I was working on it, I got into working with hydrophones, which are amazing and fun to work with. 
and I was recording in in Austria uh, in a town called Grein, which is an extremely narrow part of the river cleft, um, which has many vortices um, in it in, and many rock reefs and the riverbed. So it's a very active, fast bit of river. Uh, the hydrophone was picking up the, the coming and going of a current in the river, which was generating a lot of mid-range pitches and was wonderfully irregular. And when I listen to it, I talk about it, uh, I play it sometimes in talks, just pointing out how, how flexible and unpredictable the phrasing is. I mean, that river, that current phrases itself beautifully. <laughs> beautiful way of saying it. And it's something that I, I guess if you tried to write it, it would be near impossible if you tried to mimic it in, in performance. Oh, very hard, yes. <laughs> yes. The, the, the time ratios between one phrase and another are probably really fine and subtle. Yeah. Probably what a lot of musicians would aspire to is that, that kind of flux, which is so, so innately natural. It cannot be faked. Have you had to resist? Because it's interesting listening to, to you talk and you're... Your your emphasis on the innate musical sound quality aspects of what you're doing. Have you had to resist people imposing a political slant on your work or an activist slant on your work? I confess I wouldn't wouldn't object to people uh, imposing an activist slant because because preservation of river systems and water. Uh, tables and so on is, is is going to become more and more critical and crucial as as global warming uh, continues exponentially increasing. Uh, and I'm not a natural activist myself, but I've always hoped that uh, that when people listen to recordings of rivers by myself and all the other people who are working with river systems, um, it evokes. Uh, personal connections to a river system and evokes a sense of caring around it. Um, not something I express directly, and I don't. I try to avoid being didactic in my work, and whenever I've done it, it hasn't worked. <laughs> so it's not my something I do well. Um, but I'm delighted if somebody else takes it. The business about being an activist or, or not being an activist. How much was that on your mind back in the 80s, for example? I mean, I'm thinking of when the album re was released of the um, the sound map of the Hudson in mm -hmm. 89, coinciding with a major oil spill, the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Was this coincidental? I mean, it was coincidental, presumably the timing there, but did it strike you as significant that, that your work could be used as e eco-activism? I didn't, I don't recall, I mean, I wasn't thinking along those lines, so I didn't come up with the possibility myself, and I don't recall anybody approaching me um, with that uh, mindset, in fact, at the time. What it did make me do is to stop buying Exxon gas, gas from Exxon for, for decades afterwards. I suppose I, personally, I had in my mind seen you as someone who was a who was a early and important um activist in terms of drawing our attention to new ways or or ways of reconnecting with natural resource with with nature and that being a really important um 
way to awaken a sense of care, as you say. It's core. It's it's core to what I'm doing. If I could just follow up on that a moment. Yes, awaken a sense of care. And by now, what I'm talking about is you've probably come across many, <laughs> several times by now. What I'm talking about is how is sound in the body, sound, the way in which sound enters our systems. And that is a conduit of connection to the phenomena we're listening to. Uh, and the and the vital importance of developing uh, recognition of our non-separation from the other phenomena of the world. And uh, that for me is absolutely core to what I'm doing. And it's been driving my... Um, it's been what I've been moving to all the time since I first started recording out in the environment and what we call the natural environment. It's just the environment. <laughs> it's, it's tricky, isn't it? I wonder what what we as a musical community should be doing now. I mean, we're talking as the West Coast of America is, is on fire yeah. um, and, and there is a president who's questioning the essential science of climate change. What can the arts world do in the terms that we're talking about now to to speak with a message that that is useful and that doesn't switch switch off the ears of people who aren't yet convinced that doesn't just speak within its own bubble of of already converted what do you think what do you think can be done i don't know my aunt i don't have a concrete answer to that. Um, I'm I'm really aware of the fires because we have a um, a fire season in Montana every year, which sometimes is extensive. This year, so far, it's not bad, but it has been extensive at times. So wildfire is not a, a concept to me; it's a more of a reality. Um, I've never really had an an answer about how how to how to um, how to help address uh, these these major circumstances into which we plummet and and what we should do Catherine Emler who's a, a super a superb sound and uh, a sound artist I won't label her more than that working out of Berlin, German. Um, she um, got together small groups of people. Um, everyone in, in each of these groups had a broom, a different sort of broom, four different types of broom. Catherine had, had listened to the different sounds which different types of broom make uh, on pavement and cobblestones and so on. It's an urban environment like that, an old urban environment. And they all sound different um, and different, way different strokes and speed of stroke. And you, you can get into these delicious details with that sort of work, um, create these very different sounds and did what she called a ballet of brooms in Linz about a week ago uh, with a number of these groups scattered throughout the city uh, working their brooms and it was, it's, it's utterly beautiful and, and um, masterfully, which is a terrible word, but simple. <laughs> and the sounds are just delicious. 
They kept it up. I think all these groups kept it up from 10 in the morning till about 11 at night. It was a very long time. And of course, the ambience changing around them all the time, moving through different parts of the city, at the end of which she said she was so thrilled when a number of participants came up and thanked her, thanked her for the respite it had given them from the constant pressure of calamity, so to speak, of anxiety, of, of things fall, a sense of things falling apart, for the respite that the valet had given them. And Ruth always used to say she thought that was what we could do for people. We can give them a chance to find some ease, to take a deep breath, to come back into our bodies and... and Fully and fully be in our bodies and respite, and yeah. I like that as much as anything. I think that that can be really helpful. Um, thank you so much for being so open and and sharing, and and being patient with all my ridiculous questions that probably draw, draw too much. many draw too many parallels between things that aren't relevant to each other. But um, you're you're it's just so fascinating to talk to you and I'm really I'm really thankful that we've been able to talk even though not in person right now. Wonderful to meet in three dimensions but But meanwhile I feel very much that we've met and we've been talking about things which are sort of fundamental. I I love your questions they're they're probing in in a way which which I think is go- I'm going to find really helpful, actually, making me think and, and articulate in, in ways which are going to be helpful, not in the least. <laughs> None of your questions could ever be silly, for example, <laughs> or beside the point. Yeah. They're very searching and very focused and beautifully focused. And, and thank you so much for being interested. Thank you.